We've never been this far north before. We're in Kirkwall, the main town of the main island of Orkney, the archipelago off the northern coast of Scotland. It's the end of May, and at this time of year, the days last forever. Last night, there was a spectacular sunset at about 11pm, casting a rosy glow over the boats riding at anchor in the harbour. These islands are steeped in deep history and folklore, a perfect place to meet today's Folk on Foot guest. And we're in Orkney to meet the tall, dark, bearded figure of Chris Drever, the guitarist, singer and songwriter who was born and brought up here. He was the 2017 Radio 2 Folk Singer of the Year and his band Lau have won the Best Group Award no less than four times. So we've come down to the harbour to meet Chris. Chris, it's fantastic that you've agreed to do the Thank podcast. You. I'm, I'm with delighted us. and well done for making it all the way up here. Oh, it's a, it's short a joy! For me. <laughs> <laughs> it's a joy. And, and we're in the harbour, and we can hear a ship behind us. What's that ship doing? That's the Varigan. That's uh, one of the North Isles ferries. So Orkney's an archipelago. That ship takes the people who live on the outer isles to the north of here. There are 70 uh, islands on there. There's a lot of islands, yeah, and there's a good lot inhabited too. My dad wrote a tune about that boat, actually. <laughs> right. And your dad, of course, is a well-known singer yeah. and musician himself, so it runs in the family. It's family business, that's right, yeah. <laughs> and you grew up here in Kirkwall, did you? I did, yes, I'm a Kirkwall boy. But you live in Shetland now? In Shetland. My wife's from Shetland, and I've had two Shetlandic children. So have you just come back here for us? No, I've got a three-and-a-half-year-old boy called Soren and a ten-week-old girl called Marnie. And Marnie has never been to Orkney before, so she's meeting all my Orkney family for the first time. Including your mum? That's right. Yeah, she'll be excited. Delighted. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> she couldn't get me out the door fast enough. <laughs> and what about the history of a place like this? Because it's absolutely steeped in history, yeah. isn't it? I mean, you, you go back to prehistoric times mm-hmm. at Scarra Bray. I think Europe's most well-preserved prehistoric Yeah, it's village. one of the oldest things anywhere. Four or 5,000 BC, something like that. Nearly every time they pop the top off another mound, they find, you know, an ancient cathedral or something. And there are standing stones. Yeah. And there's evidence of the Viking involvement. The Vikings looted a lot of the older things. So Maze Howe is a cairn that they have halfway between here and Stromness. It's uh, one of these places that lines up with the sun and the moon and solstices and all that sort of things. But at one time it would have been loaded with treasure. But all there is there now is uh, Viking graffiti. It's empty, (laughs) save for Sigurd Hrolfsson's. Was got here. the biggest axe in the Southland or something like that. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's nearly verbatim a bit of that graffiti. I think if we go for a walk round here, we'll encounter more of the history, won't we? And sure. We'll encounter maybe some of your history yeah, on lovely. the way. Lovely. Okay, let's go. So, Chris, we've walked through the town now and we're outside a building that says Archive Coffee. Yeah. And <laughs> it's an old library, isn't it? Yes, it's a nice coffee shop, stroke record shop, stroke toy shop now. But uh, it was the Orkney Library and Archive when I was growing up and actually my dad found the words to the Viking's Bride here. Part of his process for quite a few of the things he wrote was putting older words to music. 
It was a Viking boat from the Norway shore, and a tall sea king was he. Sailed away to return no more, nor to hear again the deep toned roar. Sank neath the foam of the sea, he sank neath the foam of the sea. The Orkney Isles was the land he sought, and a royal bride to wed. He was waiting now till the north wind brought to his watching eyes that looked for naught but the sight of the dragon's head, the sight of the dragon's head. We've come inside the old library into an exhibition room. It's rather lovely here, wooden floor and yeah. artworks on the walls and a big window looking out over the trees. That's important for your listeners to know. Orkney's not entirely bad. Right. <laughs> the sea is wild and free, my boys. The sea is wild and free. And over the back of the ocean wide, we sail our barks by the wind and the tide. We sing along in our glee. We sing along in our glee. We fish at the turn of the tide, my boys. We fish at the turn of the tide. And we whisper low while the breezes blow of the girl that's to be the bride, my boys. The girl that's to be the bride. The girl that's to be the bride. Tell me more about your dad, because he's obviously a well-known performer in his own right. I worked with Duncan Chisholm a lot, with lots of other artists. Mm -hmm. Was he playing songs around the house when you were a kid? Yeah, mum and dad, both good musicians, and I remember frequently being chased back to my bed. I sort of park myself halfway up the stairs so I could hear the tunes when I should be sleeping. So, so there'd be a big session going on in the house? Yeah, there was, there was a bit of that, yeah. What effect did it have on you? Did it make you want to be a musician at that stage or did, was that something that came later? I think it was just quite a natural thing, you know, it's just a part of life. I don't think it occurred to me at all that it was a, in any way unusual. Did your mum and dad put instruments in your hands? No, but there were certainly plenty lying about and there are lots of photos of me with banjos or kazoos and drums or cackling away with headphones on. I got a guitar for my 13th birthday, that's when I actually became obsessed with it, I suppose. A guitar kind of has never really left me since. And did your dad try to teach you? No, actually, uh, Dad had kind of left Orkney a couple of years before that, but Mum was very encouraging. I mean, she's a great musician herself, she's got wonderful listening skills. She's a good piano player, she's a lovely singer, and she's interested in the mechanics of music and has always been so you get casual remarks from mum when listening to a record about how many notes were involved in a particular chord you're listening to or things like mm. <laughs> things like that you know I I remember her saying to me when I was listening to a record once that's interesting you can hear how the guitar players playing the bass line and the chords alternately those things have really stuck with me her her approach to listening has been yeah quite inspirational always the music ceased there arose again that became a hurricane blast The cheek of the North Sea King turned pale And he heard the sound of the ocean's wail He 
so the band in the mast, he saw the band in the mast, with a shriek and a moan, the shrouds were red, and the mast went by the side. The brave Norse men neath the billows went, with their bark and all that the king had sent. To wed his bonny bride, to wed his bonny bride, to wed his bonny bride, to wed his bonny Fantastic. It's very appropriate to sing that here, isn't it? Because the, you're very conscious of the Vikings here on Albany. Yeah, it's one of those, there's, you know, I mean, I guess exceptionalism is a word that gets used quite a lot. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm a bit torn with the Viking thing, you know. For a lot of people, that past is a thing that marks Orkney and Shetland as well out in some way, you know, as kind of different or other. For me, there are qualifications there. I think you, you struggle to find a a Norwegian speaker anywhere on these islands. There, you know, there are a handful. But, <laughs> but the memory's there, isn't it? And, the, and this, yeah. this island was owned by the Norwegians for a time, the governed Danes, by the Norwegians. I think it was Denmark at that time. It was the name of the country, although I think it probably comprised what is now Norway. So yeah, Orkney and Shetland were given as part of a marriage dowry. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the song, tell us more about the song and what the words are talking about. Well, they had a kind of Orkney-centric concert at Celtic Connections Festival in Glasgow. But I was doing two songs, so I thought it would be a good, you know, if I had something clever and witty to say about one of them. I phoned Dad and said that Viking's Bride song, I mean, it's a Viking who goes to his watery grave. But the actual tale that most of us up here associate with somebody coming to a watery end is uh, Princess Margaret, who was to marry a king of Scotland but sank on the way. But I said to Dad, do you think it's like that story, but twisted around a little bit? Or do you think it's just like some Orcadian farmer sometime in the Victorian era having a go at a Norse tragedy? And Dad said, oh, I don't know, I found it in some old book. So I had to find something clever and witty to say about the other song that was doing <laughs> concert. <laughs> There is no story. To wed his bonny bride. To wed his bonny bride. So I'd like to go to the cathedral now. Lovely. One of the most amazing sights of this town. Yes. Is that huge cathedral in I know the it's, kind of, it's almost incongruous, isn't it? They're kind of wee town in the bay and then this great big red cathedral. <laughs> Let's walk over there, shall Super, we? Super, yeah. My local assist, we used to have the sessions in here. They still have folk sessions the in bar. here. Me and my friend Gavin Firth uh, started a session in here when I was about 20. So I had moved away, I'd been away about three years, and then I came back for a year, do some hard manual labour and pay off some debt. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was the impetus for leaving? You were 17, well, I think, when just, you first left, I wanted left, to get some you? gigs. But really, like I think for a, a lot of us teenagers here who maybe weren't, interested in higher education it felt like we just had to go somewhere else to get things done you know yeah. so 
So there was no prospects for you here, really? Well, I guess not. No, there was no prospects for an aspiring professional musician. I think that would be fair to say. I don't think I'm denigrating anybody by saying that, yeah. yeah. So where did you go? I went to Edinburgh. Me and a couple of pals got a house. We picked one out of the newspaper and got to know a whole lot of musicians. I did quite a lot of playing uh, double bass gigs mostly, but I bought a double bass. What was and, it about uh, the double bass then that attracted you to that well, instrument? Because it's not the most easy one to travel around with, I know, I know. I just like the sound. I used to just walk around with it on my shoulder. I used to walk the length of the length <laughs> of it. You're tall, gigs. isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I couldn't actually afford to pay for the bass and my rent and stuff after a couple of months of trying. So I I headed home and stayed with my folks for a year and I got a job in the fish factory. I didn't last very long there. That was terrible. And then Hard work. Uh, just stinky and horrible and actually Dare I say it, it's where a lot of the school bullies ended up. Generations of school bullies and you, like, oh dear. <laughs> standing up to your elbows You're a bit of a target. Guts, you know, yeah. it's like, oh, God. But then I got a job doing a bit of building with my stepdad and then gardening, landscape gardening with my auntie and her fella. It and that good. made you enough money to got back think there, that you could put yourself on your feet. That's right, and I had made enough contacts before I left that when I moved back, I was able to just go straight into gigging. I didn't have to get another part-time job or go on the dole or anything so I just landed back there and went okay give me some jobs and people did and that's what you've been doing ever since it is so last night yes I went into a fish and chip shop yeah and they had some photos on the wall uh-huh. of the bar game yeah which is like BA with an apostrophe yeah. after it yeah. which is BA is ball yeah. isn't it yeah. and it looks really violent what is it there are no rules it's Christmas, isn't it, when they Christmas play it? Christmas Day and New Year's Day. Yeah, so there's two a year. And how many people take part? Depends. The New Year's Day one is usually bigger. Like hundreds of people? It's, it's Well, I wonder if 150 is a good estimation. And what's Certainly. the aim of the game? So if you're a dooney, you're playing to get the ball into the water at the harbour. And if you're an uppy, there's a wall at the far end of Victoria Street. But it's been going on so long that nobody knows... How the, or when the man it who served me my fish and chips yeah. said that he himself, on several occasions, had been seriously injured. He broken ribs. And well, that seems to be arms. a common injury for the bars, ribs. Yeah, because it's such a crush. So if it gets stuck in a lane like that, then you could have the whole weight of that. So it can go down but, a tiny alleyway like yeah, that. Yeah, and if, if you're caught in the doorway with the ball, all of their weight could be on you. And I have seen a few years ago, if it's a dead end, you know, I remember them passing bits of masonry out. <laughs> really? Yes. But yeah. he said he'd played the game where he'd gone through somebody's house. So that's kind of frowned on. <laughs> right. There are things Is that, that against are, the rules? Things that are frowned on, but there are no rules. Right. So it's kind of like, don't do it, guys, unless you're on my team, in which case, whatever. <laughs> so we've ended up now on the steps leading up to St Magnus Cathedral, which is such an imposing building in red stone with a pointed steeple going up and uh, a wonderful arched gateway here. How old is this building? The cathedral's more than 850, but not yet 900. I can't be more specific than that. (laughs) So it's an ancient foundation. And is there a story about St Magnus? Yeah, he was martyred by his cousin, Haken. He was double-crossed. They were to meet to have a summit together with an agreed number of men, but Haken turned up with ten times that number. 
And, and was that the, the time when the Danes, the Norwegians, were in control of Orkney? Yeah, yeah. So they were both in line for the earldom, both Magnus and Hakon. And was Magnus a religious man? He was. George Mackay Brown called him the dove in his book Magnus, which is a good read. So he was kind of considered a peaceful man in an age when that was not necessarily a good thing. And how did Magnus meet his end? Hakon's cook took an axe and cleaved his skull right down the middle. Oh my goodness. Yes. <laughs> and why was the cook doing it then? Uh, nobody else wanted to do it, because they all knew him. I think there had been various other suggestions of how to deal with him, you know, whether to send him away, exile him. But that was deemed not to be efficient enough, because then he still existed. So there could still be people who would say, ah, but you're not the rightful heir to the earldom. So, yeah, the cook was eventually given the task. Did they ever find the remains of St Magnus? Well, so there were remains found. There's a skull found in one of the pillars in the cathedral that has injuries consistent with the story. But I think, like, most people are pretty sceptical that those would actually be his remains, but they might be. And round the corner, there are two palaces here, yeah. aren't there? The Earl's Palace and the Bishop's Palace That's right, in, yeah. in ruins. Mm-hmm. Who, whose were they? Well, the Earls of Orkney would have had that palace. And as you know, I, I mean, it's a sort of microcosm of ancient Scottish or English history and politics. You know, the church and the crown, they're there side by side, very powerful entities, suspicious of one another at times and at other times closely bound through clever diplomacy. But there they are, you know, the two big seats. I mean, you can actually throw a stone from one to the other. Mm. And there's a circular tower there. What's that called? It's called the Moosey Tour. And uh, I use it as a landmark in a song that I wrote for Lau. But... uh, because it's not a particularly universal term, the Moosey Tour, right? Change it to the Bishop's Tower, you know, for the sake of songwriting, you can shift these things around. Tell us a bit more about that song. So, I wrote that for Lau, yeah, maybe 10 years ago. I've had this kind of fascination with the drinking culture of Scotland for a long time. There's all sorts of fun and release and social good that comes out of it, but we are also chronically famous. You know, our national stereotype is a drunk man, nearly, you know what I mean? And there are lots and lots of problems with this thing. So I'm kind of, I'm always fascinated by how we got here and which bits are good, which bits are bad. How do we kind of make this a grown-up thing and not just like a social disaster? I actually think that Scotland's doing quite well in the main just now. Like, I think our attitudes have changed quite a lot. I see a difference. But that song was really dealing with my 20s coming out of a bit of the scene where drink was kind of nearly all of the social currency beyond repair one dismal morning redemption waiting in the afternoon grey and chill though at the dawning I am the lonesome winter moon Get my powers from someone else I'm just 
inside the cathedral now, which is quite a, an awe-inspiring space. Amazing. Have you ever played in here? Yes, and it's funny, you know, because I know I did readings, Bible readings, as a primary school kid here for Christmas shows and stuff, so it's not, it's not an unknown space to me at all. There's a fantastic stained glass window <coughs> at the end there with a huge circular motif at the top, massive pillars stretching away from us into the distance in this redstone. And have you played anywhere more or inspiring? I mean, I played in Lichfield Cathedral with Julie Fowlis, which is definitely bigger, but it's not as Viking. <laughs> <laughs> Guitar was the first thing that I played from when I was 13, but I play mandolin and play double bass and I play fiddle and kind of have a go at everything. And I was passably good at lots of them. But I made a decision after I came here actually to try and focus, try and manufacture a situation where I would play for at least three hours every day. So you're fitting managed... that in around the landscape gardening and the, and the fish yeah. farming and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah. And I did that for about a year and it made a huge difference to my, my understanding of the instrument. So now from the middle of the town here, we're going to go to a more remote part of the island, are we? Yes, let's go and have a look at Scapa Flow. I'm very pleased that I've visited now several Orkney Islands because we've <laughs> driven over barriers between the different islands. What were those barriers put there for? They were put there to stop the uh, German U-boats getting in to Scapa Flow in the Second World War, to stop them from sinking British ships. Uh, there was a tragedy and uh, a U-boat got in and sunk the Royal Oak, a loss of 850 men, I think. So they blocked the channels between the islands that guard the Scapa Flow. The Scapa Flow is a, a huge natural harbour, isn't That's it? That's right, yes. Yeah. So the, the British Navy used Scapa Flow as their base for their whole Navy for both of the World Wars. And uh, in order to stop the U-boats getting into these channels that, between the islands that sort of guard the perimeter, they first deliberately sank a load of ships, freight ships and things like that. Which you um, can still see. Yeah, Bits of the decaying ships yeah. are sticking out through the water in a rather ghostly image, aren't they? <laughs> yes, as we, as we came past south, like Pirate's Cove or something. Yeah. And then they built these barriers, ultimately, to sort of seal the gaps. So they got Italian prisoners of war largely to deposit these huge concrete blocks all the way between the islands. And they built roads between them. So we've just driven Churchill barriers one, two, three, and we've stopped here at four. 
Let's walk on the beach now, because presumably this beach didn't exist no, until they, they built the barrier here. We are maybe two or three hundred yards from the barrier right now. We can't even see it. There's so much land here now that, that didn't exist in 1943. <laughs> was it here when you were a kid? It, not the stuff we're standing on now, no, absolutely not. This would have been the sea at that point. There were block ships that stuck out of the beaches here when I was a kid. They're now under grass. <laughs> right. like... so, so you would have come walking on the beach here and you would suddenly have stumbled across a huge ship sticking out of the sand. Yeah, and those were initially in the sea, of course, but then as the sand deposited more and more, it became that they were sticking out of the beach and now they're completely buried under... It's just an enormous beach, actually. It's pretty. But it staggering. certainly stretches as far as the eye can see today because it's very <laughs> misty, it's very isn't it? And the, the mist has come down low on the, on the sea and the sand, but you can hear some, some birds above us. And you have a song which tells a story about Scapa Flow from the First World War, or at least yeah. the aftermath of the First World War. Yeah, there are historians that would argue that one of the things that accelerated the signing of the armistice at the end of... World War One was a mutiny amongst the German Navy in uh, Oldenburg, Wilhelmshaven, Kiel. And once the Kaiser realised his navy was no longer functional, he, he ran away to Holland. He never returned to Germany. And the German government capitulated. And uh, they had the second biggest navy in the world after the British Navy. And so there was a whole lot of hardware then to be divvied up. Many ships? Yes, 72. <laughs> and a lot of people didn't think it was terribly wise that Britain ended up with everything, given the amount it already had. So they were kind of negotiating to see how to split all that ordnance up, all that material up. And um, so they thought at best of it was crewed by Germans until they got that done. So all these mutineers ended up back on board the ship's with the officers they'd mutinied against three days earlier on their way to Orkney to Scapa Flow and they were interned the whole fleet here for about six months. So there were 70 ships yeah. in the sea just there yeah. under guard presumably by yes, the British Navy. that's right. Trying to stop them because this is the, a great place for that because it's such a large natural yeah. harbour. Mm-hmm. And how did the sailors, the German sailors cope with those conditions of being kept here under captivity while the bigwigs decided what to do with them. Well, I think it was really, really hard. Like, I think it was really hard. So they they weren't allowed off the ships. They weren't allowed radios. They weren't allowed newspapers. We didn't feed them. They relied on food parcels from Germany, can you imagine, at a time when there must have been virtually no infrastructure at all. So they were hungry and they were smelly. I think soap was was hard to come by and fresh water. and, And, of course, there's ongoing tensions with, you know, the defeated officer class you know, national pride and all those things were a whole different thing in people's psyches in those days, I think it's fair to say. Or at least that's how it seems, reading back off pages from the time. So dirty, smelly, cramped. Yeah, very, very unpleasant. And it all came to a very dramatic end, didn't it? Yes, an amazing thing. It's kind of amazing that so many people don't know anything about it, really, like an enormous event. The British Naval Detachment, who were charged with guarding the fleet went out into the North Sea on exercises and Admiral von Reuter, who was in charge of the the German high fleet, had had a plan in place for some time. He'd been getting messages passed between the ships and he implemented his plan 
which was to open the sea cocks of all the ships and when the sailors on board the ships were sure that they were sinking, abandoned ship. And they did, they sank the German Navy to the bottom of Scarpa Floor. I mean, you know, there were exceptions, but the, it was a largely successful act of defiance. And did anyone get hurt? There were eight or nine deaths, and they were German sailors who were shot by returning British naval officers who were incandescent with rage at being unable to stop what was happening. They're, I think, buried mostly in Linus in Hoy. What happened to the ships? Are they still down there? They were sold... <laughs> this is a shaggy dog story. <laughs> they were sold by the British government to a scrap merchant from London. Well, the German Navy was sold yeah, whilst this, on this, the bottom of the yes, seabed. that's right. So he came up and he developed all sorts of modern salvage methods putting the dirigibles inside sunken vessels and inflating them and getting them up to the surface that way, all that stuff. He he developed a whole lot of that stuff. So most of the fleet was raised before the Second World War started. And actually, they dragged a lot of those ships to Rosyth and they cut them up for scrap and some of it got sold to the Germans. And did you have to work out a way into the story? Because I think you tell the story from the point of view of a ordinary... German sailor. Yeah, I toyed around with different points of view and I I feel like I came to that decision partly because there's a strain of xenophobia sort of infecting public discourse currently which I find really discomforting and I, you know, I know that there had been an awful conflagration and Germany had done dreadful things and None of the people living here at that time would have thought they deserved any better treatment, but I also feel like those were ordinary people, a lot of them. They didn't have to crew those ships. They did volunteer. They volunteered because they had no better options because their own country was a mass of smoking rubble. Will you sing it for us here, standing on the beach overlooking Scapa Flow? I will, I will. Took 20 years to build this fleet, four years to lose the war. Millions dead and no one knows what the dying was all for. The kings run off to Holland and they jailed the mutineers. Months since the killing stole, we were still anchored here. Maybe a country rose and fell in Oldenburg, God only knows. And all we saw was the rise and fall, the tides in Scapa Flow. We were dirty, though we knew we didn't care. Our only flag was a linen rag, as blank and lousy as our hair. As pretty decor and dignity, they ran off with our hope. 
sir, I sold his iron cross for soul. Maybe a country rose and fell in Oldenburg, God only knows. And all he saw was the rise and fall of the tides and scapel flow. The only man to sink a navy in one day. <laughs> Some lovely you. images in it. And then the one about I stole his Iron Cross and sold it for soap. Mm. Were those images that came out of the research that you yes. did? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Some of the source material that I got given was incredible. So it just so happens that on the 21st of June, 1919, there was a school trip on a boat in Scapa Flow. Like a whole bunch of school children out there watching it happen, like in the middle of it, on a boat. And so there's yes. interviews with the people who were those kids, yeah. And there were recordings of their there testimony? actual recordings of them speaking, yeah. Oh, yeah. amazing. About the whole thing. It's <laughs> kind of amazing, some yeah. school trip, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, I know, yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. I mean, there are things I didn't know. The sailors, obviously, of the German Navy were taken on board after the scuttling and marched in column down through Scotland and pelted with stones and scalped with sticks the whole way down a kind of walk of shame I didn't know any of that
music. <laughs> just, I just play, just play and all, then kind it comes of all, out. all of the time and then occasionally you hear something and you go, oh, OK. It sort of forms into a pattern that you want to remember. Yeah. It's kind of, yeah, it's uh, one of those people who picks up a musical instrument and then sits and watches the TV or reads a book and... Plays the musical instrument. Plays the musical instrument until something distracts me from the other things, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then do you have to just quickly record it on your phone or something yeah, like that? Yeah, I do a bit of that, yeah. I, I use that quite a lot for for things that maybe are occurring in, in a way I can't recreate. So I got some great stuff from my plug hole the other day. Uh, <laughs> your plug hole? I did, yeah. Hold on. <laughs> You're getting your phone out now so we can hear it? This is Yeah, this is my kitchen sink from a couple of days ago. It made some amazing music. Tiny little drummers down the sink. Were you drumming? No, it's just the noise it made. It really? I just, just put my phone and pressed record because it was fantastic. Like, yeah, some Rhythm. Little, yeah. Well, then you could you could sample that, can't you? Yeah, you absolutely. Or like you can't really hear it, I guess, with the wind and everything going out here just now. But there's a kind of there are bits of melody in it as well. It's like different registers on the different things. So you kind of sometimes just pull a little snippet like that out of something and find out what the what the tune is that's in there, and then work with that so you're you're not associated like you, you haven't generated that tune so sometimes that's easier like a to found work on item a yeah. found object as an artist would say yeah exactly that yeah. you've you've then appropriated and turned into your music yeah amazing yeah it's wonderful it's, it's everywhere music's everywhere <laughs> <laughs> The barriers were built, as you said earlier, by Italian prisoners of war, and they've left their mark here in the form of a chapel, haven't they? Yeah, well, it's two Nissen huts with a fantastically ornately painted front entrance and, uh, yeah, some beautiful frescoes inside. Maybe we could go and look in let's have there. A look. Yeah, let's see. Wonderful bird song. Absolutely. Yeah. We're now outside the chapel built by the Italian prisoners of war who were brought yeah. here to build the barriers between That's the islands. Right, yeah. Extraordinary structure, actually, isn't it? Yeah, well, there was no Catholic place of worship. I mean, there is now. There's one in town, but I think at the time there was there was nothing for them. So they built this out of some Nissen huts and concrete blocks, and they had some talented painters. So there's some frescoes inside, and... They're maybe too old now, but until very recently, there was old guys coming from Italy from time to time to touch up their original work. Oh, really? There was actually a camp, a prisoner of war camp surrounding this chapel there then? Was, yes, there was one on this island. This is Lamb's home, and then there was two in Bury. Let's wander in through the door, between the two pillars. You can hear the dehumidifier working, but this is... Quite striking because it's it's curved as you would expect a Nissan hut to be, and then ornate paintings on the ceiling, as if it was the ceiling of a chapel. Yeah, they've a painted chapel. an interior that is grander than the Nissan hut. They've given it some brickwork and uh, yes, <laughs> fake brickwork, frescoes, 
and then an altar at the other end with two niches with um, religious figures All illuminated. All this wrought ironous, uh, reclaimed scrap too. So that there's a wrought iron screen in front of the altar with curly cues and decorations on it and an ornate cross in the middle. What a surprising place to find here you know, yeah. in the middle of nowhere. It's kind of testament to the spirit of people wherever they find themselves. And the dove in light on the ceiling there in the blue sky, almost shining out at us. And then two small lanterns on either side with the cascade of stars coming down, made out of iron. What a beautiful place and a peaceful place, really, isn't it? It's very moving. Did you come here when you were younger? Yeah, I mean, school trips, or I guess, like, you know, we would sometimes get dropped off at the barriers to go fishing for a few hours when we were in our teens. I probably would come here from time to time. Because it is kind of inspirational. Imagine finding yourself in such grim circumstances. You know, I know, I mean, to me, Orkney's my home, I know Orkney, but imagine you come from southern Italy and you're captured by the people that you're trying to kill <laughs> and shipped thousands of miles from your home to a cold, windy, desolate island and you're living in a POW camp forced to build defences for the enemy. It's not a situation full of light for those people and yet their way to kind of cope with it or, or part of it at least was to bring something of their own home, the knowledge inside them, into this bit of the world. And it's a, an act of creativity. Yeah. That's what's so yeah. beautiful about it. Is it's Maybe even defiant creativity. Yes. <laughs> You know, whatever you do to us, our spirit is going to be strong. Yeah. There just happened to be guys capable of this in that group of people. Surely that level of artistry would itself be a comfort to the rest, that they had a superstar, you know, they had a guy who was capable of this. It's an interesting place to think about singing one of your songs called ghosts, mm. which is about immigration, isn't it? Yeah, initially I had kind of imagined a sort of first-generation immigrant viewpoint, but so I grew some arms and legs, and at this point there have been so many different interpretations, all kind of go into the same wellspring that I've kind of left off explaining it in any further detail because I've heard numerous better takes on it than my original thought. And do you mind that when the song no, it's better, takes it? on a life of its own That's and other people... That's the best. Come and interpret it. Yeah, and sometimes people learn your songs and play them back at you, and that's like that's the ultimate. It doesn't get any better than that. Well, while we're thinking about the Italians who came here, let's hear Ghosts. They were not like them. A generation ago We came on the same ships we
fantastic Chris it, it just makes me wonder what it means to you to be an Orcadian when when people write about you and they say oh Chris Drever the Orcadian mm. singer and songwriter do, do you feel proud of that or what, what does it mean to you I, I really really don't feel proud of that I have a problem with exceptionalism and I also have a problem with feeling proud of where on earth you appear like it feels that doesn't feel like an achievement to me, and it feels like something that creates a lot of problems. Like it doesn't solve anything. And you know, if we're handing out achievements for being born, then I think we need to take a look at ourselves. But I am happy to be associated with Orkney because it's a beautiful place, and there are lots of great things about it. And it's um, not it's not an overlooked part of the world, but there are lots of people who know very little about it, and I, I think it's very interesting. So. I would like people to know a little bit about it, but also Orkney's a bit like a football team in some ways. So, like, you know, sometimes you do gigs and there are people who come because they're a fan of Orkney. Like, they have an Orkney T-shirt and they've been ten times on their holidays and they, you know. And for a lot of people, it's got this sort of crazy romantic notion that's, like, 
ancient Viking gods and pagan rituals and solstices and magic and and to some degree all of that has its place and it's all true but there are also real people and real issues and people sometimes try to tackle an enormous picture by telling an enormous story and it's an impossible thing to do so I like to try and talk about issues that concern me through the prism of Orkney I like to use the world that I know to talk about things that everybody knows universal themes and I think that in that way I am an Orcadian writer because I come from here I am an Orcadian and I'm using my perspective that's informed by this place to talk about the things that concern all of us. Chris it's been amazing to spend this very short I feel like we've only scratched the surface of a place that I'd like to come back to again and again but thank you for showing us so much of it and for sharing your music with us today it's been a real joy thank Thank you. you it's been an absolute delight. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe or follow us to make sure you get all our episodes as soon as they're launched. And please rate and review us so others can find us. If you'd like to make a small monthly donation to help us produce more wonderful episodes, you can become a patron by going to folkonfoot.com and clicking on Support Us. We'd really appreciate it if you did. To keep up with the latest information, you can sign up for our newsletter at folkonfoot.com or follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram with the handle at folkonfoot. We hope you enjoy listening to Folk on Foot just as much as we love making it.